tonight. A state of emergency just south of the border as a colossal snowstorm bears down. Warning about life-threatening conditions. We could possibly see anywhere from four to six feet. Millions bracing for impact. A frightening first-hand look at the perils of RSV and overwhelmed hospitals. I was terrified. A Canadian family nearly forced to send their child to the U.S. for a bed. Plus, a World Cup reality check. We have some rules that we expect. As visitors pour in, fears about the future in a country that forbids same-sex relationships. Who's going to be there for the rescue? CTV National News with Omar Sachedina. Reporting tonight, Sandy Ronaldo. Good evening. A warning tonight for those living in the Niagara region, especially across the border in New York State. Get ready for a major winter storm. As much as one and a half meters of snow is expected to fall on the eastern ends of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, with the city of Buffalo expecting to get hit the hardest. Now, the town of Fort Erie, Ontario, has already canceled Saturday's Santa Claus parade, and 11 counties in New York are under a state of emergency. Here's CTV's Adrian Gobriel on the cold menace ahead. A whiteout is already spreading across parts of western New York tonight. And out in the woods, the trees are popping and snapping, dropping snow everywhere. Though this early blast promises to just be the appetizer, with all signs pointing towards a historic winter pummeling on the menu. This is considered an extreme event, an extreme weather event. That means it's dangerous. It also means it's life-threatening. It's not just the potential for one and a half meters of snow by Sunday morning. It's the speed in which the flakes might fall, with forecasts of 8 to 10 centimeters per hour, according to New York's governor. When it's coming down at that rate, it is almost impossible to clear the road to make it safe to travel. In these parts, this month is known as Snowvember, and with good reason. This was the scene in November 2014. The National Weather Service describes this storm as extreme impact Erie County. Only seen this once before. Uh, that would be during the storm that actually hit eight years to the day. The region is hoping lessons learned from that storm, which claimed 13 lives, will better prepare them for the lake effect walloping that's already on the way. The National Guard has been deployed. 350 plows and 5,700 utility vehicles are standing by. Businesses are being advised to close on Friday and commercial vehicles are now banned from driving on the I-90 and the Niagara Thruway. We have moved snowmobiles, UTVs and ATVs to western New York and to the Watertown area in the event that we get into search and rescue operations. If anyone is doubting what's about to touch down, they need not look any further than Orchard Park where the tailgate will have to wait with this weekend's Bills game now moved to Detroit. Here closer to home, north of Toronto in cottage country, they could get between 30 to 60 centimetres by Sunday. Though, Sandy, that could be a light dusting compared to what's expected in Buffalo. OK, Adrian, thank you for this. Well, Buffalo is where one Canadian family thought they were headed because of overwhelmed hospitals in Ontario. The mother of a young boy who was seriously ill is now speaking out as the healthcare system struggles to keep up with the surge of COVID, influenza and RSV. CTV's Mike Walker reports. 
This is heart-wrenching video of a parent's worst nightmare. A two-year-old Oakville boy with RSV fighting for oxygen. He just was struggling so much to take a breath. You could see through his sweater and through, you know, his blankets that his chest and stomach were elevating huge. Carrie Graham says her son Tyler's condition quickly deteriorated after they rushed him to their local hospital. His oxygen levels were so low. It appeared they thought that the um, machine was actually broken. Two days later, Graham says doctors were scrambling to find a pediatric ICU bed somewhere in the province. At one point, doctors were prepared to transfer Tyler to a hospital across the border. After two rounds and no beds available across Ontario, uh, that's when they discussed that the only option is now they're going to call Buffalo. Then, at the last minute, a bed became available 150 kilometers away in London. To Know that the system is there and trust that it'll be there for you when you need it, which is hopefully never. And then to be there and hearing it may not be able to support you is terrifying. Tyler spent nearly two weeks at the London hospital where he was on a ventilator. Are you feeling better? Yeah. His condition did improve and Tyler was discharged on October 28th his third birthday. I love you, Tyler. Ontario hospitals have seen a recent surge in pediatric ICU admissions and have been operating over capacity. The health minister responding to Tyler's case today. That uh, patient that you're referring to actually did get care in the province of Ontario. Currently, there are 114 children in the ICU, two more than the maximum the system can handle. Now back at home in Oakville, Graham says her son is recovering well. When asked today, provincial health officials didn't specify how far children requiring ICU beds could be transferred. Graham says she's sharing her son's story to make parents aware of the RSV symptoms. Mike Walker, CTV News, Oakville. One day after Chinese President Xi Jinping chastised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the G20 summit, Canada is being accused of acting in a condescending manner. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says Xi's rebuke was a normal conversation and that strained ties with Canada is not China's fault. The diplomatic dispute coincides with concerns over the disappearance of a Chinese human rights activist who was granted asylum by Canada. CTV's Judy Trin reports. All Catherine Dong has of her father right now is a photo and a fragile hope. He survived because the dream of being reunited with his family was so strong. And then again, that dream of freedom was snatched away. Her father, Dong Guangping, was arrested in Vietnam in August. At his safe house in Hanoi, witnesses saw police place a black hood over his head. His family worried the Vietnamese government has turned him over to China. And I know that in China, he will face more persecution, more mistreatment, more injustice. Dong, once a high-level police officer, has been imprisoned several times after speaking out about the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. In 2015, the Canadian government granted the family asylum. His wife and daughter made it out, but not Dong. In 2019, he tried to swim to Taiwan, but failed. Then he fled to Vietnam in 2020 where he lived until his arrest. Every hour, every day, every week that goes past without us knowing where he is, without knowing anything about his fate, means really that the danger he faces is only continuing to deepen. In a statement, Global Affairs said it's working to ascertain Dong's whereabouts, including through diplomatic engagement with both Vietnam and China. 
Uh, we have been told uh, and, and are confident that it is the case that both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs have raised the case. Today, Dong's daughter hand-delivered letters to the Chinese and Vietnamese embassies pleading for answers and the release of her father. It's not known how many human rights activists with ties to Canada are currently detained in China. But Sandy, what we do know is that Dong has been missing without a trace for more than 80 days. Judy, thank you for this. Russian missiles pounded Ukraine's power grid again today. At least seven people were killed. Ukraine says Russian strikes have left 10 million people in the cold and without power as the season's first snow fell in Kyiv. Now, the violence in Iran claimed the lives of two children today. They're among the more than 360 protesters who've been killed in a crackdown by security forces over the last two months. Protests that first started after a young woman detained for allegedly breaking the rules on hijabs died in police custody. Here's CTV's Danielle Hamanjan. The words that echoed through the Tehran metro system would have been unthinkable just a few months ago. I am a free woman, they chanted. You are the pervert. You are the whore. Seconds later, Iranian forces chased them down the platform, as they've done across the country over two months of anti-government protests. And even more so this week, following calls to commemorate the victims of the 2019 bloody crackdown over fuel prices. Among those indiscriminately killed, a 10-year-old boy who wanted to become an inventor. This is a child-murdering regime that needs to go, and the people of the world need to understand this, need to stop appeasing this, this regime, and need to stand up for the freedom-loving people of Iran. Hundreds of protesters have been killed, nearly 15,000 arrested, with some sentenced to death. But neither the risk of being killed nor detained has stopped them. It was just a matter of when, when the world would believe, when Iranians themselves would believe that they could rise up against this brutal dictatorial regime that has been repressing their rights for the last 43 years. And the time is now. The death of that 10-year-old boy is no isolated incident. According to human rights groups, 43 children have been killed since mid-September. And that, they say, is the absolute minimum. Sandy. Danielle Hamamjan in London. There are also concerns about human rights abuses in Qatar, which is three days away from hosting the World Cup. Despite assurances there's nothing to fear, homosexuality is illegal in the country and questions remain over what happens when the tournament ends. CTV's Heather Wright reports from Doha. Canadian flags are beginning to fly in Qatar. We want to show that we are Canadian. We love Canada. Mauricio Hoyos was born in Colombia, has Canadian citizenship and now calls Doha home. He says the World Cup has prompted some change in Qatar as the country relaxes certain rules ahead of kickoff. At some point, they need to open uh, a little bit. And it's, I mean, it's little by little. It's not overnight. 
Qatar's tolerance will soon be put to the test when scores of rowdy football fans arrive from all over the world. They will enjoy the tournament. A Qatari citizen, Ahmed al Nuaimi, has tickets to several matches and reiterates the message that all are welcome here, with a caveat. We want people to, to feel free and they want to express their feelings and, and to enjoy the tournament. But as His Highness mentioned and the Ministry of the Foreign Affairs, that we have some rules that we expect and we believe as the people are mature enough, they will respect our faith, our beliefs and our religion as well. FIFA requires host countries to comply with its rules promoting tolerance and inclusion. LGBTQ2S plus fans are welcome, despite same-sex relationships being against the law. But there are concerns for the local gay community once the world goes home. What's going to happen after the World Cup? Well, I'll tell you locally, there are conversations about Western cleansing. Dr. Nas Mohammed is one of the few Qataris to publicly come out as gay. He now lives in San Francisco, but fears for those still in Qatar. So just within the last like two months, I had somebody be disappeared because they were wearing makeup. Many LGBTQ2S plus fan groups have decided to skip this tournament over safety concerns. As for Canadian fans, Global Affairs expects between 20 and 25,000 to make the trip to Qatar in the coming weeks. Sandy. Heather Wright in Doha. Thanks, Heather. And Team Canada got a big boost today, just before the country's first World Cup appearance since 1986. Lucas Cavalini! That penalty kick in extra time gave Canada a 2-1 victory over Japan in an exhibition game. The Canadians play Belgium in their opening match on Wednesday. And CTV National News will have special coverage of the World Cup in Doha starting this Sunday. Time for a short break, but when we come back... A new day is dawning on the horizon. Nancy Pelosi and the end of a transformative tenure. Plus, soap for hope from a side hustle to an extraordinary enterprise. The Prime Minister's National Security Advisor says Canada's intelligence agency set too high a bar on whether to use the Emergencies Act to end the convoy protests. They said it did not meet the threshold as defined in their very narrow interpretation of what they can do under their act. Jody Thomas also contradicted the RCMP commissioner in her testimony, saying that Brenda Lucky was given a chance to update Cabinet on policing plans the day before the act was invoked. Well, a cross-border investigation has led to terrorism charges against a Quebec man. The RCMP alleges he was planning an armed insurrection in Haiti. Here's Quebec Bureau Chief Genevieve Beauchemin. He lives thousands of kilometers from Haiti, but the RCMP alleges 51-year-old Gérald Nicolas plotted a coup to take control of the Caribbean country. What the investigation revealed it had, is that he was actually trying to, there's no other way to say this, uh, do an armed revolution in Haiti to overthrow uh, the president, Jovenel Moïse, and also to seize power for himself. Jovenel was shot and killed in 2021, a murder that fueled instability and soaring violence even further in the country as criminal gangs wrestle for power. But the RCMP says its investigation into Nicolas 
has no links to Jovenel's assassination. Still, Nicola faces three terrorism-related charges. Investigators say he traveled to Haiti, as well as Central and South American countries, to finance terrorism, but also to attempt to acquire weapons for his cause. The complex international investigation started over a year ago. Nicola is not detained and is awaiting trial at home and says he was framed. Well, he strongly denies uh, all the charges and is, it's his intention to uh, contest and to demonstrate that those charges uh, aren't true. Nicolas will be in court on December 1st. If indeed he is convicted, he faces up to 14 years in jail. Geneviève Beauchemin, CTV News, Montreal. The U.S. Congress is facing a challenge. Who will replace Nancy Pelosi, one of the most powerful figures in American politics, now that she's stepping down? For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. The mother of five went from homemaker to house speaker as the first and only woman in the job. Pelosi's announcement comes almost three weeks after her husband, Paul, was attacked in their San Francisco home. Still ahead, traveling a healing path filled with both history and hope. An idea from the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Report has sparked a nationwide movement. It involves transforming green space into healing forests, places to share, learn, and reflect. In tonight's Indigenous Circle, CTV's Kreese Ashkate explores one of the ten paths, this one in Nova Scotia. Sisters Ella and Eva Nicholas walk the beautiful Sky River Trail in Wagomaw First Nation every week. Today, it's a tourist destination for hiking, fishing, and land-based learning. But it is also a traditional gathering place for the Mi'kmaq. For thousands and thousands of years, this river has been like a provider for our people. The Mi'kmaq would come to this healing forest to harvest traditional food and pick medicines, a practice that is now coming back, with this garden used to grow tobacco, mint, and sage. We want it to be a safe place for gathering, to do ceremonies, to do workshops, to share some of our um, cultural knowledge. And by next summer, the forest will have a new addition. With the return of this traditional Mi'kmaq gathering place known as the Longhouse. The space will be used to learn about the Mi'kmaq culture and for healing for residential school survivors. It's going to be great because I think we'll all have a place. Muglit Gould Peltier was forced to attend the Shubenacadie Residential School at only six years old. Now 82, she still carries the trauma she endured in that school. It's there. It's been there all along. But uh, to have it come out is a different thing altogether. Uh, and to deal with it, I suppose, is another thing. And I don't think I'm at that point yet. Ella and Eva's father and 11 of his siblings also attended that same school. They, too, see the longhouse as a solution. A lot of us grew up with trauma. You know, nobody here is perfect. Everybody needs a chance to heal. And this is like an open invitation. An invitation that is already being accepted by residential school survivors in the community. Chris Nashkate, CTV News, Wagomaw First Nation.
And Creason joins Manitoba Bureau Chief Jill Makashan in a CTV News special airing tomorrow on residential schools and the Papal Apology. I think I did see you at Masquachis just really briefly. I was in the cemetery and you were in the powwow arbor. Yeah. What was that like? This wave of emotion, uh, you know, from the beginning the Pope got on stage right to the end and during the apology and, you know, there was people crying, there was people getting up and needing to take a break. I keep thinking in my mind, I want to be able to talk about what might happen next, but we really don't know what might happen next, do we? No, no, everything is, is a wait and see, and everyone's saying this is a good first step, but uh, we need more from the Catholic Church. The damage is done, and the incarceration rates, the drug addictions, everything is all there. All of that is intergenerational from residential schools right up to today. The Pope's Apology, a reporter's notebook, airs Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel and starts streaming at midnight on Crave. After the break, the right mixture, breaking barriers with some simple ingredients. And we leave it tonight with a story of inclusion sparked by a pandemic hobby. As BC Bureau Chief Melanie Nagy reports, two spirited siblings are cutting through the business of suds to start a meaningful dialogue. Mixing, melting, and measuring. Making handcrafted soap. Bring it up. Yeah, that's good. Is something Simon Vanderloo and his older sister Caroline do together every week. We started to make soap uh, during COVID when Simon and I had a little bit of extra free time. We decided to spend it together. Yeah. While it began as a way to keep busy during the early days of the pandemic, it's now become a bustling business. The thing about soap is that you make a lot of it and then you have a lot of it. So part of it was just let's, let's sell it. Let's see if we can make it, make it something bigger. Something bigger for Simon, who lives with Down syndrome. Part of my hope of this business is to show what's possible, because many people with developmental disabilities are underemployed, are not given opportunities. Simon is an equal partner. Not only does he make the product, he helps sell it online and at community markets. Are people buying your soaps? Yeah. They are. Sales are good, but what's even better? The brother-sister duo are breaking down barriers. Many people think workplace accommodation is really challenging. I do want to encourage people to think differently about disability, about work. You see, every bar of soap sparks a conversation. I can see people start to think differently. And some assumptions they may have made start to change. And I am so pleased by that. Yeah. For now, it's only the two of them making soap. However, their shared goal is to grow the business so they can hire others in need of meaningful work. Are you goofy, huh? Yeah. Because as Simon has clearly shown, everyone has potential. Melanie Nagy, CTV News, New Westminster, BC. Thank you for sharing your time with us this Thursday. I'm Sandy Ronaldo. John Venavalli Rao is here tomorrow. I'll see you Saturday.